All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to Titus chapter 2. This book of Titus, Paul was writing to Titus who was pastoring and overseeing the churches there in Crete, little island off the coast of Greece. And um, in the first chapter, last week we saw that he kind of laid out the requirements for elders and bishops and uh, a little bit of what kind of people they ought to be. And now in chapter 2, Paul addresses himself um, more specifically to the kind of teaching that he wanted Titus to emphasize. And he breaks the teaching down in, ver- in the, a couple of different age categories as well as the different emphases for each sex and, and, and then things for Timothy himself as a, as a teacher of the word. And so a lot of stuff in here that applies to all of us. So let's just dive into it. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He goes, Titus, use your mouth to communicate doctrine that's correct. Teach it and teach it right. And one of the big themes of the book of Titus is sound doctrine, but it's that sound doctrine leads to sound living. And it's never a good thing to just say, well, we're teaching the truth, period. But we need to learn the truth in a way that transforms our lives. And that's how you can tell whether or not you're really hearing the truth, whether the truth is really being taught, as if lives are being changed. And so he's going to go into that now. But speak what's proper for sound doctrine, and then that the older men may be sober, first of all. It's not that younger men and women shouldn't be, but he's probably zeroing in on some of the areas that were maybe more difficult for the individual groups that he addresses. And so sober right off the bat, um, the word here can mean, you know, not, not drinking, abstaining from alcohol, but its most basic um, meaning would be more clear-headedness or calm that you'd keep your cool. And I think as we get older, and especially with men who are used to being able to make things happen, sometimes as we get older and we can't, we don't get the kind of responses from people that we used to get, or we don't have all the capabilities that we once had, it's easy to get worked up. It's why so often as people get older, there I mean, there are other reasons for this too, but it's one reason why blood pressure becomes an issue and why um, heart disease is such a threat. And, and it would seem that often stress level becomes more. And sometimes people will drink or do other things in order to try to mellow themselves out. We get wound up. Really, as you get older, you should mellow. It should be hey, I have a perspective. I've seen it all, I've done it all, and now it's time just to calm down and not overreact because younger people need older people who can tell them, 
hey, it's going to be okay. Settle down, calm down. You're going to be all right. And so he mentions this right off the top, specifically to older men, because older men will set the stage for the emotional life of the home in a lot of cases and for their work as well. And so he just says, start out by just calming down. Don't get yourself worked up. And maybe a part of the idea is when you were young, you could afford to get worked up, but you're older now. Keep yourself settled down, old fella, <laughs> you know, because uh, you know, I don't think you can take it. Um, but be sober. And then he says reverent. That's a word that means to be honorable or respectable. It's, there's, you hate to see the idea that, well, when you're old, you just have to become boring. And I don't think that's what he's saying here. But at the same time, there's a certain amount of dignity that should come from experience. And that's what he's, I think, addressing. And it ties in very well with being calm, being sober, is that you give God his proper position, and as you grow older, that as you mellow a bit more, hopefully, then you have a greater sense of respect and reverence. That holy things seem like a bigger deal to you, so that you can communicate that to the next generation. And even if you were not a very you know, reverent and honorable person when you were younger, as you get older, develop that. Because um, we need someone to be that way, and older men are the ones that I think God has called to, you know, to be an example, to be serious about the things of the Lord, um, and to, to be the type of people who other people feel like they can come and talk to you and you're not going to blow them off. It's that sense, you know, I, I know certain people that if I'm going through something serious in my life, there are some people that I wouldn't even tell it to. There are other people that I would be very comfortable telling it to because I know that if it's serious to me, they would take it as being serious as well. And the world has too few of those kinds of people. So many people are caught up in their own trip that they don't really have time to... to um, to weep with those who weep. And so that's kind of the quality that he's encouraging older men to foster here. When you're older, it's time to not be so into yourself. It's time to be a calming influence, but at the same time, a mature influence, a respectable influence. You should be the ones who aren't going to freak out in an emergency. And then he says, temperate. That word means self-controlled, or literally it's referring to someone who's sane, someone who isn't crazy. So again, you see the, the maturity, the discipline, the self-control, as we were talking about Sunday, um, going through that passage. And here, the same thing, old men are encouraged to develop the, the capacity to maintain control, to know when to be serious, to to keep their heads about them, and to not do crazy things. You know, when you're young, people expect you to do crazy things. When you're older, you do crazy things, they're going to lock you up. So just leave the crazy stuff for the young people and, and uh, keep your head about you. And then to be sound. 
in faith and love and in patience. That word sound means healthy. And he breaks it down into three areas. Faith, what you believe. Love, how you relate to others. And patience, your capacity to wait for things to happen. And all of those things are elements of spiritual, mental, emotional health. And so he lays it out. The challenge is you've been around for a while. You've done life for a while. And by now, you ought to have worked through some of that, some of the craziness of being younger, some of that lack of control. And, and now your faith has been challenged and it's come up healthy. You have a good, solid trust in God. And you've learned how important love is, and therefore you have a healthy love for others. A lot of times when people are younger, there's love, but the love is very unhealthy. It's sometimes inappropriately expressed. It's sometimes overly um, depending on reciprocation, on somebody loving you back. But as you get older, a healthy love is a love that is able to love messy people a love that is able to care about people who don't seem like they necessarily deserve it. But you're, we, old guys, should be the ones who lead the way in speaking up for love. Now, it's funny, women are most known for being loving, and so sometimes the Bible doesn't have as much to remind them of it because women kind of do it naturally. But as they get older, sometimes... Uh, hysteria can sort of creep in and crowd that out as well. And so as you're younger, you can pretty much trust on a younger woman to be seeing things from a loving perspective. But as a woman matures, sometimes it's just more difficult. They're burned out. They've, they've had love you know, burn them sometimes. And so it's really important that the guys step up and represent the position of love not only on behalf of those who need to be loved, but toward their wives as well. That when, when women become older and they become more insecure, men need to step up and demonstrate love and in, a, in a very healthy way, in a way that helps a woman to settle down and to feel, to feel that she matters and to feel that her life is worthwhile and worth something and i think the older you get probably the more of a need there is to do that and so guys need to work on that if a man can't figure out how to make their wife feel loved marriage is going to be really miserable because as they say if mama ain't happy ain't nobody happy and and women have ways of making the home miserable for the man who doesn't learn to be loving and if you don't learn to communicate love to your kids and to others around you, life can get really lonely. And so it's a very healthy thing, not only to have faith, but to, to walk in love. I, I think when guys are younger, they're somewhat threatened by the vulnerability that's built into the concept of love. But as you get older, you ought to realize, okay, I got nothing to prove. I'm a man, whether somebody thinks it or not. I don't really need to intimidate people. I don't really need to leverage and control people. Nothing more pathetic than a man who is mature, a man who we're talking about 
in their 40s and 50s that's still so selfish that they haven't figured out how to, how to love someone and really put them first. It's, it's a sad thing. But it's always something that can be learned. God wants to work that into your lives, and that's why he's telling Titus, hey, tell these old guys, you know, you don't have all that you used to have, but your love can mean a lot right now. So start to wear that. Start to live that. Start to be known for that. And then patience. Again, patience is something that experience ought to teach us. Because we've been anxious in the past, and we should have learned by now, being anxious doesn't make things happen. Hurrying almost never gets you there quicker. Um, And so, and the truth is that if you don't get what you want, when you want it, if something doesn't get done on time, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal. But freaking out over it isn't going to help regardless. You may pay a late fee or you may miss a train or you may, you know, something could happen. But over time, you begin to realize that all of my stress and all of my, all of my ranting and raving, all it did was make things worse. Um, if you, if, uh, you know, and I've had to learn this as a man with a woman who operates on her own timetable on everything she does. If I'm, if I'm looming over her and going, come on, it's late, or if I'm sitting in the car with the car running, honking the horn or something, it just it makes her more frazzled than it makes us even later. <laughs> and so it's, it's a smart thing to just learn to be patient. It's actually more efficient, I've found, and and then she starts to want to be on time just to you know just to show me that she can do it and um so old guys get healthy in your patience just learn to wait it's okay it's what it, you know just keep a newspaper with you and always have something it's one of the great things about the iPhone If I'm waiting for anyone, I can pull up the latest news or the latest jokes or, um, you know, I can play a game or whatever. And it really, it's really a healthy thing to just not be stressed and pushing all the time. And so he's going to teach these old guys this. It's not that these aren't good for young guys, but these are things that take time to learn and old guys should have learned them. And... uh, so, and then he turns his attention to the older women. And he says, likewise. I mean, the same stuff applies to you. But also, tell them to be reverent in their behavior. The same word, more honorable, respectable. As women get older, they should get, they shouldn't keep trying to act young. I mean, it's fine. And, and I think there's a part of us that should always remain childlike. But at the same time, there's certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of dress that are just age-appropriate. And people who are old and trying to come off like they're young are really pathetic to people who watch. You just look and go, okay, what are you trying to do here? I mean, you, you really think you're fooling somebody with that? Um, and, and, and sometimes it can actually make you look older. You young people know what I'm talking about. You old people don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But he's gone, for the older women, be okay about being older. 
Don't get all tripped out about, oh, I'm, I'm getting old. It's, there's nothing wrong with getting older. Something good. Consider, consider the alternative and you know, not getting older. And getting older is okay. Wear it well. Do, show, show some class in just being who you are and accepting who you are. Because the kind of insecurity that causes someone to refuse to, to adapt also causes you to not, no one's going to respect you and be able to go to you for the kind of advice that you ought to be able to get from someone who has been around the block a few times and who has been through some situations. I mean, we, I know we live in a society that tends to elevate youth and tends to denigrate age, but the truth is, man, it's a great thing to have some experience. You have a lot to offer. And so he says, it's kind of like act your age in a way. Now, not being stodgy or not just, you know, we're not talking about automatically going and buying the clunky old lady shoes and things like that. But it's just, hey, just be who you are and be comfortable with who you are. Don't, don't try so hard to not be who you are. And not slanderers, so don't gossip. Everyone has certain problems with gossip, but for some reason here, he cites the older women for it. I, that's just what he said. I'm just reading it. <laughs> not given to much wine. By the way, it, it is easy to turn slander into a prayer request, and it's the same thing. I think sometimes people you know, who are really into you know, oh, you know, tell me what I can pray about. And, and um, there's a fine line. But as he says also, not given to much wine. And so when a woman, as she gets older, maybe has a little more time on her hands, um, maybe getting, having a hard time dealing with getting older or, you know, feeling kind of neglected and depressed. And often this is a time when they'll begin to hit the bottle or to, or to get addicted to pills and things like that in order to get them by. And he goes, no, that's not, the way to, that's not the way to deal with age. And teachers of good things. So they should be those who are willing to communicate with others and tell them what's good. To be real positive with other people. And then he, he gets a little more specific. It would refer to their family, but then now also to the, to the younger women. And so in verse 4 he says that they, that is the older women, would admonish the young women. That they would be an example to them and that they would, they would talk to them about loving their husbands, loving their children. And then he goes on here with some other things that they need to be taught too. But it is important for... Uh, and when he's talking about the younger women, he's probably talking about women who are newly married and they're just starting out. And it's one of the most difficult times for a woman. And I know a lot of women who have already passed that stage of their life, the first thing you want to do is just forget how miserable it was. Or, you know, when you talk to other, you know, younger gals, you want to pretend like, oh, yeah, it was just so fun having the kids at home. Um, <laughs> it's miserable having little kids. I mean, it's a huge privilege, though, but it's a tough time for many, many women. And, and I think if women who have already been through it could encourage 
the younger gals and just go, hey, it's going to happen. It's going to go really fast, and it gets better. And then you're going to look back, and you're going to treasure those times, and you're going to show pictures and pretend like it was fun every second. But... You know, just to just to give them that connection with reality and to encourage them, and even give them a break by watching their kids sometimes, so so they can have you know some freedom would be a really nice thing to do. Um, older women can handle little kids for a little while, and really, it's also a great thing for you as older women to. Uh, be thankful that you're not still in that stage. But the model here is that as a family, that those who have already been through it would be there to encourage those who are in the middle of, of a difficult time. That, that they, would, they would take younger gals under their wing and encourage them in the Lord and, and to just to help walk them through life and allow them to feel like they're not alone. Now, it's great if a mother does this for her daughter, but sometimes that just doesn't happen, either because of geography or um, as girls start to get older, especially in their teenage years, they really battle with their moms. And generally, once, once a girl gets married and has their first kid, all of a sudden everything's fine and now they want mom. And if mom is, is a good person, she'll welcome that. But some moms just want to punish the daughter. They haven't forgiven them for some of the bad things they did or the way they treated them. And, and sometimes it takes years before that relationship is healed. And that's pathetic. Everyone should do everything they can to always have a good relationship with their kids, moms and dads, boys and girls. There's nothing that we have that's more important than that. But some people don't have it. And so it's really important in a church that we be looking out for those young women, those young mothers, and to be there for them so that they're surrounded by a bunch of mamas, so that they're surrounded by people who will be there for them and encourage them and accept them. You just can't have too much of that. And so uh, teaching them to love their husbands and to love their children. Loving your husband, by the way, is something that you have to learn. It doesn't come natural. Loving children kind of comes and goes naturally. But, but that's where somebody who's more mature can come along and help encourage that but also for the young gals to be discreet. The word there means to have self-control, um, to not just fly off the handle, to not have a life that's out of control, but to encourage young women, and, and really Titus is to encourage them, but also to encourage the, um, the more mature women to encourage them. Get your life under control, if you weren't here Sunday, I would encourage you to get that message from Sunday because we talked quite a bit about how important self-control and discipline are in a life. But boy, it's important. And it's never more important than when you're young and managing a household and having kids. It's really, that's the time to get your life organized. And so he says, let them know how important that is. But also to be chaste. 
That is to be pure, to be faithful, and to be homemakers. The, that's something that has sort of a negative connotation nowadays, um, as if being a homemaker is a second-class citizen. There's really nothing that's a greater privilege than having the opportunity to manage the home. And what the word, what the word here for um, there in verse 5 for homemakers is, means literally to guard the home. It's like this is your territory, and there are things that a woman is to protect in the home. That means that a woman should make sure that she keeps certain negative influences, negative attitudes out of the home, that she should be guarding that, that she should be looking out for through prayer and through encouragement for everyone who lives within that home, but also that she should keep the home organized and, and neat to make it a pleasant place for, for people to come home to, that when they come home, it's like, wow, this feels like a relief. Um, it's, it's such a blessing when someone makes the home such that you can't wait to get home. There's nothing more frustrating than to be coming home and dreading coming home. But in, in so many ways, women have that opportunity, and, it's, and home is where the heart is, as they say. Home is kind of central base for everything that happens out of our lives. And, and so God calls, uh, you know, we talk about the man being the head of the household, but really, um, in a lot of ways, the woman is the one who has the responsibility to guard the home and determine what it's like. And so um, that's what he's talking about here. That they would be good, just good people, doing, encourage them to do the right things. Obedient to their own husbands. The word there for obedient is a word that means to, it's hupotasso. And tasso means to arrange, and hupo means under. And so... Arrange under the husband is literally what this is talking about. It's not so much an emphasis on just do what the husband says, but it's adjust yourself. Make the adjustments that are necessary to maintain a relationship. Now, men need to do this with women as well, but his reminder here for the young women is that they would learn to do that. And and it's obedient to their own husbands. The word there for own is a word we talked about last Sunday in the message. Also, the word idios, which means private, individual. Um, that's yours. As I said Sunday, the word came to mean crazy because it was thought that a, a person who is insane or an idiot, as they would call it, um, is somebody who's living in their own world. But what, what he's saying here is that women need to see their husband as their own and then do what's necessary to create a healthy relationship with them by making the adjustments, by understanding this is my husband, he is what he is, now what can I do to make the best of that? Now, in a great marriage, husband and wife are both doing this, but um, it's emphasized 
for the women, even though both are commanded to do this. It's really emphasized in several passages for the woman because I think, I'm not sure the reason, but it would seem that women can kind of prime the pump of relationship. Uh, men are, tend to be more hard-headed, more stubborn, perhaps because they're out there battling um, in, the, in the world maybe a bit more than women are. They tend to be a bit more competitive. And again, these are generalities. Don't, you know, I don't want any women coming up and telling me that they are every bit as competitive and aggressive as men are. I really don't even want to talk to you if you are. <laughs> but in general, <laughs> in general, and, and hey, if you're a guy and you're married to a woman who has the temperament of a man, you better learn to adjust, okay? You better hoop tasso or, or bail. But uh, so, and I'm not condoning bailing. But I understand. But... Um, <laughs> No, but the idea here is, ladies, in managing your household, also manage yourself to make the adjustments that are going to help create the kind of an environment that, causes, that breaks through the crust of your husband, that causes the husband to feel supported and encouraged and not so threatened. And, you know, you know this from before you were married, how easy it is to manipulate a man. All he's saying is, go with that. <laughs> you know, take advantage of ways in which you are able to positively affect in a relationship the man that 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 you have chosen and or that was chosen for you by God or by whoever arranged the marriage. And you know, because you can either spend your whole married life arguing over who's right, or for men and women, you can look at your spouse and go, this is who I am committed to. I wonder what's the smartest way for me to bring out the best in them based on how I treat them. Man, if a, if a husband and wife are both doing that, you'll have a wonderful relationship. But if... If the woman starts doing that, um, things are going to get a lot better. And so he's saying, let the, let the younger gals understand that um, sometimes you just got to adjust. And why he says that the word of God may not be blasphemed. See, a part of this was culturally determined. And you can argue that, and even a little later he's going to talk about slaves, and you can argue that some of Paul's instructions on marriage and on slavery and government and things like that, that they seemed so culturally determined that because the culture was that way, he seemed to be just flowing with it rather than saying, hey, there is no male or female in Christ and this shouldn't be that way. But Paul was always just practical. And so he adjusted to the way society was. And there are times when we need to as well. Um, there are times, for instance, you know, when it talks about, you know, if your child is rebellious, you need to beat them because they're not going to die. Well, you can argue about whether those were the good old days or not, but sorry, those days are gone. And if you do that, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. And so in a lot of ways, we, we can see what Paul is saying here, 
And there is a flexibility kind of built into it. And that's why he says, if you do this, the word of God won't be blasphemed. In other words, if the way that you live is such a challenge to the existing cultural order, then people are going to see what you're doing and it's going to turn them off to the word of God. Hey, the important thing is not what's the role of men and women or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, in heaven, there's not going to be marriage. So marriage is a very temporary thing. For some of you, that may come as a great comfort. But, but not for me. But, uh, but see, the whole thing is it's God's word that matters. And if, if Christians ever live their way in such a way that people hate the word of God because of the way we communicate about it, that becomes counterproductive to our mission. So we shouldn't be beating people over the head with just, we are the way we are because God says so, and I don't care what you think. But we should be cognizant of how we're coming across because our mission is to communicate God's word, his gospel, his grace. And so Paul said, you know, some of you women are catching on to the fact that you're equal to men and you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and, and that's great. But he said, the women's lib movement within the first century church is not going to do well with the gospel. Now, it may be that some of the tenets of feminism as time went by became a real plus for the gospel. I have no doubt that when, when Christians got involved in promoting uh, the women's movements for temperance, the women's movement for suffrage, for voting, um, in the same way that Christians got involved with the civil rights movement and in other ways. Hey, at, at a time, at a particular time, that may really make the gospel look attractive. Um, it may be very important, but it's all a matter of timing. At, at certain times, that just wouldn't have flowed and the issue of the truth of God's word would have been lost in the process. And so that's kind of the way I read this in the context. Um, I am not saying that we interpret scriptures in light of culture, but what I'm saying is our behavior in obeying God's word needs to also be sensitive to the culture in which we live. And just because we can rationalize certain behavior doesn't mean it's a good idea. And just because we have a legitimate concern doesn't mean that should become what we harp on. I mean, scriptures say a lot about the negative impact of drinking alcohol, for instance. And so in a culture whereby it's a pretty usual thing for people to be um, very much uh, supportive of a temperance movement, then that can be great. But for instance, over in Europe, where it's an accepted part of life that most families will have a glass of wine with their dinner, and if you go over there and start preaching you know, that, that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't drink, now that may be the conviction of my heart, but I'm not going to go preach that necessarily in in France, or in Napa for that matter. You know, it's just like, you pick your spots, everything that we have to communicate has to do with getting the gospel out there. 
not getting pulled off and sidetracked. I have friends, for instance, who, who minister in cities that are incredibly liberal, and others who, I mean, here in Orange County, it's you know, fairly conservative, although you can't necessarily tell that based on some of the people we elect. But if you're, you know, the good thing about being aware of that is that when you go, if you're ministering in San Francisco, you just can't be harping on, you know, the we got to get these petitions signed against the liberals and let's make everybody in our church have no Obama stickers and all that kind of stuff. Because no, that's just that's going to detract from the gospel. The truth is, we should really be careful not to be driven by politics wherever we are. But Paul had a sensitivity based on really one thing: how can we get the word of God out? That's what was important to him, and so that's what he ultimately appeals to here: that if in doubt, then do what makes the gospel look attractive. Not compromising ever what you believe. Not compromising what God's word says. And there are some areas, for instance, the Bible is very clear that homosexuality is a sin. So I don't care if the whole society decides that it isn't. Um, we're not to change our convictions and start to do you know, gay marriages just because, well, you know, you kind of got to float with society. There, there are things that the Bible is very black and white about, but there are a whole lot of things where it's like, look, maybe you could make a case for having the right to sticking up for yourself and telling your husband to, to go jump off the, the pier because you're going to do what you're going to do. Maybe you have that right. You can have a couple verses that'll support you in that, but is that smart? Is that going to either give you a happy family or a positive witness, and probably not. And so that's kind of what he's saying here. Um, let's see. Sorry. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, okay, good words. Yeah, it, likewise, exhort the young men, after we finish the women, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, again, saying stayed under control in all things, showing yourself, and now he goes, Titus, you're a young man, so I'm telling you, be an example of this, show yourself to be a pattern. The Greek word there is tupos, which, from which we get the word type, which means something that represents something else. It's why type is called type. In today's computer age of digital technology, we don't appreciate what a type really is, but back in the dark ages, you would, you would have a, a letter that was carved out or, or um, that was poured and cast or machined out of metal, and that letter would strike a page with ink, and it would write. And so the, the letter that was represented was coming forth from a piece of type. Um, and he's saying in the same way, you be a stamped out example of what good works are. And the word there for work is ergon that we use. I mean, literally it means work, like you're working. And so he says, young guys, be an example of a good worker. Be an example of somebody who really goes for it in, 
in that which you're called to do and that which you're choosing to do with your life. And in doctrine, in what you believe and what you teach, show integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. What you teach, be consistent. Be clear. Have integrity. What you say you believe, make sure that you're practicing that. Make sure that you're not compromising and corrupted depending on the situation. He says, basically, if you're going to teach, be an example of that teaching. And then he says, sound speech, that means healthy speech, that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. What a, what a great goal that what you say is so healthy, it's so encouraging, it's so um, wise, that if people wanted to criticize you, they couldn't even find something to pick at about you because your speech just brings healing to others. Your speech just comes and it soothes and it comforts. He says, yeah, do it, do it like that. And he says, exhort bondservants, to, which were, again, in their society, a servant for the most part was, was um, like an employee is today. They were in debt to, the, to their boss and they had to work a certain amount of time in order to pay that debt off. The only difference between bondservants in those days and employees today is that we never get them paid off. Um, but he says, tell them to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not ripping them off, but showing all good fidelity, being dependable, faithful, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Again, he's not dealing with whether they shouldn't have had slaves, they had them. <laughs> it's, you know, it was a fact of life. Thankfully, things are a bit different now, although, like I say, when you read about how slaves were treated back then, uh, in a lot of ways, with a decent master, it was just like having an employee. And so many of the slaves then, even when their debt was paid off, they wanted to continue because they were treated like a member of the family. So don't think of their slavery as being equivalent to what slavery was like in our country, which was despicable from the beginning, not that there weren't probably some caring um, slaveholders in our country, but, but in our country, the slaves were kidnapped against their will, brought across the, the ocean, and beaten into submission. Don't think of that as being this. Okay, so it is more of an employee type of thing. And they had certain rights, and they were protected. They weren't considered just to be chattel. But he's telling them to act wise, be well-pleasing, not lipping off, not stealing, and being faithful. And the reason is, again, that they may adorn, the word there is cosmeo, um, from the root word cosmos, which means to arrange, that they may arrange, and by the way, that's why uh, women have cosmetic surgery, um, same word, it just means that they need to have some things rearranged. Um, and they may put on cosmetics to temporarily arrange them. 
But he says, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Be considering, okay, not arguing, not causing trouble, but thinking, how can I live my life in such a way that I will make Jesus Christ look good? That people will look at me and go, you know, I need to hire more Christians because they work harder, they're respectful, they're honest. Now, sad to say, in our society, a lot of people don't have that perspective. I know people who are Christians that won't hire other Christians because they've been ripped off by them so many times. But the greater general recommendation here, requirement of all of us is how do we make the gospel look, the doctrine of God our Savior in all things, the way that we conduct ourselves affects what people think of what we teach. And so we should always be trying to adorn the doctrine, trying to arrange our lives in such a way that it makes Christianity look good. Because again, we carry the message that can save the world. We carry a message that can change anyone's life for eternity. And so to be offensive should be something that we avoid at all costs. I, you know, sometimes we'll be in a restaurant and, and uh, you get terrible service sometimes. And there's a temptation to complain, send your food back, uh, ask, you know, for another order, talk to the manager, all that kind of stuff. I try to never do that because, you know, I don't know who those people are. I have people come up to me all the time who go, oh, aren't you Pastor Dave? I came to your church once, or your voice sounds familiar. I think I heard you on the radio. Well, I don't care what they think of me, but I care passionately what they think of my Lord. And so I would rather go ahead and not finish a meal because it's not good and still leave a decent tip and just go, hey, that's the way it is. And in case somebody goes, man, we, you know, I, we really messed up with this pastor who was in our restaurant, but it was cool. He was nice anyway. And, you know, that was good because I know there are a lot of people out there who would love to be able to say, oh, there was a group of Christians in our restaurant and they left us a bunch of tracks but no tip. You know, and they were rude and loud and obnoxious and they complained about everything. And so for me, it's like no getting a meal warmed up again or getting, you know, a few bucks or whatever, that's nothing compared to eternity. And I and and so that's kind of the way that we're to live our lives, always thinking about the fact that we are representing Jesus Christ. What are people going to believe about Jesus based on how they see us living their lives? It might affect the way you try to be a good neighbor, take care of your house, or, or work really hard at work, or have the best things to say, or not be a gossip. Or There are all sorts of things, and none of us are perfect, and we all struggle. But the question is, are you adorning the doctrine? Are you making Christianity look good? There are some people who believe crazy things, but the reason that they're successful at that is that in some ways they make that crazy stuff look good. I'm, I'm convinced that 
certainly some of the cults. No one would ever follow them based on what they believe, but they're so nice that people are drawn in, or they may emphasize the family, or they may you know, be extra caring or understanding or gracious. And so as a result, people are drawn. Well, it's up to us as Christians to conduct ourselves in such a way that people are drawn to discover what our faith is really all about, what we believe and why and how, how we live. And so that's what, he's, that's what he's saying here. Now we come into, in verse 11, just an amazing passage of Scripture that, in, that contains one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ that we have in the entire Bible. But he's summing up the, the doctrine of God our Savior. And that causes him to go, okay, God our Savior. And by the way, uh, God our Savior, he makes it clear, is referring to Jesus Christ, who is God, as we talked about in the passage earlier. Um, but he goes, speaking of him, here's the deal. Here's what you want to adorn. Here's what you believe. Here's the basic truth. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, the Greek word epiphany, it's just come in as a flash, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Not just the elect, by the way. Jesus Christ offers salvation to everyone. He, want, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all the, to come to repentance. Not everyone responds, but the offer is made openly to everyone, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And again, that's the reason why we need to be concerned about how we come off to people. Because he's made this offer of grace, and people aren't going to see grace until they see grace in us. When you've been touched by grace, you are able to show grace. And there's nothing more powerful nothing more revelatory, nothing more radical and life-changing than that day when grace, you experience an epiphany of grace and it flashes on you and all of a sudden it's like, I don't have to do it. It's been done for me. He just loves me no matter what I'm like. No matter how I act, he, he wants me for eternity. And so he says, that grace teaches us the word there for teaching is teaching as you would teach a young student in school. He says, grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's taking us all to school. And it's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that is, turning away from the way we used to live, we ought to live soberly. And the word therefore Soberly is, again, a word that means self-control. Righteously, doing good things. And godly, having a reverent attitude toward the Lord in this present age. Now notice, soberly, righteously, and godly is a three-pronged approach of how we live our lives. Soberly, or self-control, is inward. That's about me getting it together within myself. Righteously is outward. That's how I treat other people. And godly has to do with upward and, and how we relate to God. So he says, when you really understand grace, 
First of all, you knock off the garbage. Deny the ungodliness and worldly lust. All of a sudden, that stuff doesn't mean as much to you. And now, you deal with yourself in self-control. You treat others graciously and righteously. And you're related to God. It affects all three of those areas of life for you. And you're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. Now, Titus 2.13 is as strong of a, of a statement of Jesus being God as you could possibly have. Now you go, but wait a minute. And, and if you talk to a cultist who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ, you say, look what it says. You know, that, that teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly less, live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was called God our Savior. He's called our God and Savior, it's God. And they'll go, oh no, it's God and Savior. It's two different people. They're working together, but Jesus is a Savior, but he's not God. That's why he's distinguished from God. But grammatically in the Greek, it's impossible for it to be referring to anything but our God and Savior. And the reason the reason why, I'm not going to bore you in detail, but there's, there's something in the Greek that when two nouns are joined together by the word and, or chi in the Greek, but they only have one definite article, which is our the, when they're joined together by chi and only one of them has the definite article, they're both referring to the same individual, both referring to the same thing. So God and Savior are linked because they have only one definite article. And interestingly in this verse, there are two of these. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule, by the way, in Greek, if you want to write that down. And if somebody tells you, oh, they're two different people, go, you don't know about Granville Sharp, do you? And that'll shut them up. But, but the blessed hope and glorious appearing are both joined together with one definite article, and so the Granville Sharp rule applies there. It also applies God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the bigger picture, he's saying, when you're beginning to understand grace, you're looking for that. See, an epiphany has come to you, and it's his grace, but there's a greater epiphany that you look for, the appearance of Jesus Christ in the air to come for us. This is, by the, this is one of the reasons why I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, because I, I don't think any other perspective can maintain this same emphasis on, I am waiting for his return. If I believe that the rapture came, for instance, at the end of the tribulation, I'd be waiting for the Antichrist and then counting down the days. I'd be waiting for the abomination of desolation to happen in the middle of the tribulation and counting down three and a half years. But 
for what we call the imminent return of Christ, which is something that undeniably the, the first century apostles and disciples believed, the best explanation is the next thing that happens is this glorious appearing, our blessed hope, Jesus Christ coming for us. And we'll get into this more actually this Sunday when we are uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we should be characterized by that looking for him. And then he emphasizes he gave himself for us so that he could make us, purify us, and make us his own special people. You're all different, but you're all loved uniquely by him. And he has a special plan to develop you. And his grace will lead you to discover what that is. And then he just says, speak these things, exhort. The words parakaleo, call people alongside, go, come on, man, this is cool. And rebuke, that means to convince, be persuasive. With all authority, let no one despise you. Paul had told Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. This is the same idea. He's just going, Titus, this stuff's important. Stay on your message. Continue to preach the grace of God. And continue to communicate that when you understand what God has done for you, it changes your life. And that's how you know you get it. These changes are happening. And it's for old men and old women and young men and young women universally God sees you as special and individual and he has a plan for you and he wants to work that plan out and if you'll stick with his grace, he'll do it. If you fall back into some sort of religious, habitual, going through the motions of, of religion, it's not going to happen the way that it will if you hang on to grace and you make grace look good to others life will begin to work for you in a, in a really powerful way. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this scripture. And we do look forward, God, to that blessed hope and the glorious epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who promised to return for us, and we know that he could come at any moment, help us to live like we believe that. And continue to work in our lives, teaching us, developing us, helping us to mature into the kind of healthy servants of yours who manage to live life productively, making Christianity look attractive to others as we show grace to everyone we encounter and adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ, Lord. Continue to teach us by your grace. In Jesus' name.